It's only 12 months away and I get to trade this thing in. 12 months and I get a new phone. It's very exciting. Not that uh, there's anything particularly wrong with this one, I must say. In fact, there's nothing wrong with it. It's got no cracks, no problems with it. Everything works just fine, but I get a new one. I get to upgrade it for a new model in just 12 months' time. I don't know about you, but I get excited about that sort of stuff. Do you get excited about that? It's only 12 months and I can trade it in for a new model and then, well, this one will sit on the shelf. It's the same with cars, isn't it? I'm told the optimal time to trade in your car is a thousand, uh, before 100,000 kilometres have been done. Now, interestingly, in the US, it's recommended that it's before 100,000 miles, which actually is a fair big difference, isn't it? 100,000 kilometres, 100,000 miles, but this is when you're supposed to trade it in. Others say it's three years. Either way, you trade in the car before it starts to cost you too much more, before that new car smell goes once and for all. The optimal time to trade up for a new model is three years or 100,000 kilometres or whatever it might be. And that's kind of fun, isn't it? It's fun trading up to the new phone and trading up to the new car, but then we start to consider our own lives and our own bodies and we think to ourselves, gee, I'd like to trade up on a new model (laughs) because my body hurts. And the older it gets, it makes some funny noises and things don't work like they should. (laughs) And if it does work as it should then as we know over previous years that we fear very much that it won't. Maybe we'll find ourselves with an injury or a virus or some other flesh-eating disease of some sort. We'd love to be able to trade up to a new model, wouldn't we? Well, today we jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A part of last week, as I said, the golden section of 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. And in this passage, we're reminded that there is a day when we will trade up to a new model as far as our bodies are concerned. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has made a trade with us already. A trade on the cross bringing to us a new creation and leaving us now with a reason to live for him in this present body. We're not going to be able to do this passage justice this morning, or we could, I'll just keep talking, but uh, I won't. I won't subject you to that. But it's a fantastic passage of Scripture. I want to encourage you to have a look at this passage in more depth as you head home and ask some questions about it a little later at slido.com with that hashtag HBSP. I'm enthusiastic to get into this passage this morning. Let me pray and have a look at 2 Corinthians 5 together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Please be with us. In whatever our week has been and whatever this day continues to be, we ask that you'd help us to focus in on you because you are speaking to us in your word. We pray that I might speak it clearly, that we all might see your work in our lives and go from here changed people and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anyone a keen camper out there? Anyone enjoy camping? So Ryan, okay, there's a few keen campers. Few keen campers. Some people are dead keen on camping, aren't they? We head down uh, to Lake Tabari. We don't go camping. We're in a caravan, but we go down there most uh, 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 end of Christmas into the New Year time. And as you get down there, they're the serious campers that time of the year. They go every single year, and their setup is like the Taj Mahal. It's unbelievable what they've got down there. 
And what you realise is that in the months in the lead up to this camping expedition that they go on, particularly the men treat the camping stores like the old toy shop when you're a child. They go in there and they look for whatever the new thing is. Maybe the new thing is the the fandangled tarp that goes over the top of everything. Or or a new solar system that will power what they're doing inside their tent. Whatever it might be, there's always a new toy or something extra to add to the mix when it comes to your camping expedition. But here's what I do know. As we go down to the caravan each and every year, there's at least one very heavy storm. And at that point, some Taj Mahals stay up and some go down. Even if you love camping, the weather becomes a problem eventually, doesn't it? And it reminds us that the tent life, the camping life, is actually temporary. When the weather comes down at Lake Tabari and everybody is camping and the weather's really bad, what happens? Everyone packs up their gear And they head home to a secure place, a dry place, a place where they've got a nice bed that doesn't have drips on it. And so the list goes on. We might enjoy camping, but at the end of the day, living in a tent is temporary and living in a home is permanent. Now, there might be exceptions to that rule. There's always someone who says, well, no, I'll I'll live in a tent forever. But it's still true that... tent is temporary and a home is permanent one is easily broken and the other not so much and this is the analogy that Paul takes into the first six verses sorry the first five verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Paul uses this analogy of a tent and a permanent dwelling to speak of our guaranteed heavenly future look at verse 1 for we know that if the tent which is our earthly home is destroyed We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Sometimes we get stuck, don't we, with the chapter markers and the headings that have been put in our Bible by others in years gone by. They weren't in the original, of course, because in the end of chapter four, we've just been told, as, as Lee has also prayed for us, that Paul spoke about our outer nature wasting away. But our inner nature being removed, uh, being renewed day by day. And a slight and momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And now he takes it a step further and says, our earthly body is like a tent. And it will be destroyed. But our home, our permanence is the resurrection body that is awaiting all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You might remember the teaching of Paul earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he gives over a whole chapter to speak about the nature of the resurrection body and what that would be like. And here he revisits it with the Corinthians again. He says living in this body, in this world, is like living in a tent. It's hard and it will be destroyed. And if it's not feeling hard at the moment, it will do somewhere down the track. And this is why Paul uses words like in verse 2, he says, in this tent we groan. And in verse 4, while we are in this tent we sigh. I know for many of you, as I've walked with you over the last years, to know you're groaning and sighing about the nature of your physical health. 
your bodies. It's a frustration. Bodies are hard to work with over time. They decay and they will be destroyed. We will all end up frail. We will all end up wrinkled. We will all end up with great illnesses. We will all end up with a cocktail of drugs to try and keep us going. We will all end up weak. And if we're not there yet, we will be. No amount of good eating and good exercise will change the fact that we are a tent. This is the point that Paul is making in these first five verses. He's not trying to get us to think morbidly. No, the opposite. He's saying we live in a tent now, but we live in something more permanent. Thanks to what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We await a stronger and more permanent dwelling. See, imagine for a minute that you went on holidays and just forgot that you had a home to live in. That you went and lived in a tent for a couple of weeks and then just forgot that there was a better place to live in at home. And when the storms of life come and they blow down the tent that you're living in, you forget that there's a better, more secure place to go to. See, this is the point that Paul is making here. We must fix our eyes on what is eternal, as he says in chapter 4, verse 18, to the things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen. We should not focus our lives on what happens in this tent, but what will happen in the eternal dwelling. For all who know the Lord Jesus, this tent is just temporary. But our heavenly home is a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And as verse 5 goes on to say, He who has prepared this thing for us is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. My brothers and sisters, we're all over the map this morning. Some of us are feeling fit and healthy. This is a time for you to remember if you are fit and healthy, this tent is not all there is. And if you're struggling with your tent, know this. Trusting in the Lord Jesus will provide for you an eternal dwelling in the future in your body, in the resurrection body. And God has guaranteed this for you by his spirit. So trust that the Lord Jesus will fix this up in the future. Well, what do we do in the meantime? The rest of the passage goes on to say what we do in the meantime. While we are camping out in this tent for however many years the Lord gives us, Paul goes on to say in verses 6 to 10, we make it our aim to please God. We make it our aim to please God. Look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. On two occasions, you see, in verse 6 and verse 8, Paul says we are of good courage. And we make it our aim in this body to please the Lord, he goes on to say in verse 9. But verses 6 to 8 are a challenge to us, aren't they? 
For Paul, what he's saying is, any Christian in their right mind wants out of this tent and into the permanent dwelling. Now I say anyone in their right mind, because this is not necessarily how we think, is it, in 2022? We are so much a material people. We enjoy our stuff and our experiences and we enjoy what our body does. And even if it doesn't work, we want to maintain it to such a degree that we can keep it going and squeeze as much out of that sponge of the body that we possibly can. Well, these are the material priorities. And then comes death, of course. The thief of the material. And we realise there was more to it than the tent. See, it's easy for us to get sucked into thinking that the tent is all there is. Or the tent is the main game. But Paul says, anyone who is a Christian in their right mind, wants out of the tent because when they're out of the tent, they're with the Lord. They long for the permanent. I don't know if you saw recently, uh, there was an Australian golfer, Cameron Smith, who won a golf tournament, a big golf tournament over in the United States. Now, the golf's neither here nor there, but the big thing for him is he's been travelling in uh, America, particularly playing golf for the last two years and hasn't been able to get back to Australia. And for this particular tournament, uh, his, uh, his mum and his girlfriend and his sister were able to come over from Australia finally and be with him uh, at this particular tournament that he won. And when he won the tournament, he was so broken up, he started to cry. But he wasn't broken up about having won the tournament. He'd won many tournaments before. As he said in his interview, the thing that mattered the most was these people from home who I haven't seen in two years were here with me. He was longing to be at home. It seemed glamorous to be away and playing the golf circuit for millions of dollars for two years in a row with no fixed address. But for him, the fixed address was at home in Australia with his mum and his girlfriend and his sister and the rest of the family. See, this is the difference, isn't it, between being home and being away. And Paul says, when we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. And so all Christians should, in their right mind, desire to be with God. This is the difference between being at home and being away. And we all know this to be true, don't we? We all know why rush hour on a Friday afternoon is worse than every other day of the week. We long to be home. We all know why those greetings at the airport are so filled with emotion. We long to be home. Though we like being away, there is still no place like home, as they say. And Paul is making the point in verses 6 to 8 that our bodies, this world, is not our home. Now, this doesn't lead Paul to some morbid fascination with death. That's not the point that he's making here. He's not saying, well, as a result of uh, being away from the Lord, we should want to get ourselves there as quickly as we can. No. There's not some morbid fascination with death. On the contrary, in the meantime, he says in verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. A certain future 
should give to us a confident present. A confident present where we seek to please God. As we live in this tent, all that we should aim to do ought to be to please God. And the motivation for this, of course, is in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The motivation to please God is this. All of our work that we have done in this tent will eventually be evaluated and judged by God. Now, we need to be clear. Paul is not saying that uh, you will be judged by God by the, in the things that you do in this tent in this world and find that somehow you've lost your salvation down the track. No, we are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet... All that we will do in this tent will still be evaluated and judged by God. Now, this is not a scary thing for the Apostle Paul. After all, on two occasions earlier in verse 6 and verse 8, he says we are of good courage. This cannot be a a, a thing based out of being scared. But it is a fear of sorts, and we'll come to that in a moment. Perhaps the best way to explain what's going on here... Uh, is explained by uh, the former uh, Bishop of North Sydney, Paul Barnett, in his book. Look at what he says here. Just as a child seeks to please a kindly and encouraging teacher, so we seek to please the Lord in all we do. Hope for the future, therefore, should not encourage dreamy unpracticality in the present, but courage and purpose. We've all had that teacher or that sporting coach that we want to please because they're good. And so it is with God. We want to please God because he's a good God. And yes, he will evaluate what we have done. He will look at what we have done in this tent and see what we have done to please him. And this ought to motivate us, but not out of a sense of being scared. And so could it be said of your life that you live to please God? Or is your focus on the tent and the activities in the tent for the tent's sake. See, as we easily focus on the material, like all the world around us, that's living by sight and not by faith, to use the words of verse 7. The prospect to leave this tent and be with God in our permanent dwelling ought to be for us as followers of Jesus a thrilling experience or a thrilling thought, not an unbearable one. But I think for many it's unbearable. The prospect to please God in this life ought to be a freeing experience, not a burdensome one. But I suggest that for many of us, it's the opposite way around. The key in this passage to pleasing God is to recognise that we are in the tent and that God is watching and that we play to the proverbial audience of one as we aim to please God. Him, when we calibrate and recalibrate our lives, we will find the prospect of leaving to be with the Lord as thrilling and not unbearable, and to please Him in the tent as being not burdensome but freeing and joyful. Or Paul goes on to say what pleasing God might look like. And he speaks about this in verses 11 to 13. He says, We please God by persuading others. 
I don't know if you've ever met a particularly persuasive person. Uh, For me, uh, there's one particular person that is incredibly persuasive. I have a friend who uh, is, uh, I would describe him as flint-headed. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly what he's doing. uh, And there's pretty much no convincing him about anything. But when he comes in contact with another friend of mine, he just turns to water. This person is so persuasive that they can turn this flint-headed man into a ball of putty that does whatever he wants. This is the art of persuasion. Persuasion is the goal, of course, of convincing someone through words. Convincing them to change their mind and change their behaviour. In fact, every act of preaching, what I'm trying to do now is an act of persuasion and we all do it. You should really go up and try the new Japanese restaurant in town. I've been there and it's awesome. I haven't, but that's an act of persuasion, isn't it? And in verses 11 to 12, Paul says we please God by persuading others. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul says... I'm not trying to please you. I'm trying to please God. And I try to please God by persuading you and persuading others. And I hope one day, Corinthians, Paul says, that one day you'll see this. And you'll see that I was trying to please God and not trying to please you. And one day you'll boast that you had a teacher that wanted to please God more than please the people. Indeed, in verse 13, Paul goes on to say, if you Corinthians think that I'm a little bit mad, that's fine. In the end, I'm trying to please God. And if that looks mad, that's no problem with me. How do you go with this great task of pleasing God and not necessarily pleasing people? Pleasing God first and pleasing people second. I don't know how you go with this, but I think it's hard work. As a particular book says, it's easy to see people as big and God as small. It's easy for us to do this. We end up not saying the hard word to a Christian brother or sister because we're worried about how they might react. We end up not sharing the gospel with a friend because we think they might reject us. We get worried about making that good ethical decision at work because we're worried about our job. Pleasing people ahead of pleasing God is a desire that we all have and a struggle that we all face. And Paul says here, no, I please God by persuading others. This seems so hard to us in a a world that seeks approval from one another. Though we live individual lives, we still seek deep approval from others. This is why social media is so persuasive we get the likes we get the attention we get the worth we can please people but we may not be pleasing God look at what another uh, uh, writer Gary Miller says this Australian fella he says this fearing people does so much damage to our lives it stops our evangelism in its tracks it hamstrings our ability to lead it stops us saying the hard thing and pushes us into lying 
saying things to manipulate people into saying things that make us feel, make us feel good. But thank God that in Christ we have no need to act like that because Christ has died and risen and we are united to him and so we fear God alone. The ministry of the gospel frees us up from pleasing people to pleasing God. And the Apostle Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This is what it means to please God. But what do we persuade people of? Well, this is where we get to the final point this morning, and it's the heart of Christian ministry. This is really uh, quite a dense section of scripture from verses 14 through to 21. And as I mentioned, this is the part uh, especially that we can't go into huge detail on. It is so rich. But let me quickly uh, look at it for us under three headings. Who is the ministry for? What are the results of the ministry? And where is the ministry from? First of all, who is the ministry for? Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Who is the ministry for? The ministry that we seek to persuade people of and please God as we do it, it's for all people. Now, clearly, Paul is not saying that every person that's ever lived will be saved by God. Paul and we are not universalists in that sense. But Paul is saying this. The death of Jesus is sufficient to save all of the people of the world. It is powerful enough to save all of the people of the world. As John says in that famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus died for all people with the power to save all people. And those who now believe by the grace of God have died to themselves and live no longer for themselves but for God. So who is the ministry for? It's for all people. And this is a great reminder to us, isn't it? It's a great reminder to us that the message of the cross is for all people. Have you met that person in your life? You think there's no way in the world they could ever be a follower of Jesus. No way. They're so hard, hard hard-hearted. They want to argue at every possible opportunity. Or perhaps their life is so debauched that you think there's no way in the world they could possibly be a follower of Jesus? Well, this passage, this section encourages us to take heart because Jesus died with the power to save all people. Think again of the Apostle Paul, a murderer. Or King David, an adulterer and a murderer. Or if you're honest, think of yourself. As Paul says, there's no greater sinner than the one we know. And that's ourselves. Who is the ministry of the gospel for? It's for all people. Jesus died for all people. And so he goes on to say, what are the results of the ministry? Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The results of the ministry are this. When someone comes to know the Lord Jesus, they are a new creation. The old has gone 
and the new has come. Now, we mustn't buy into the false way of thinking that says all of our life is an expression of a new creation. Paul's just spent time saying we live in a tent. It's not the end point just yet. We live in a tent, but the new has still come. According to verse 16, we see ourselves differently. We don't see ourselves according to the flesh anymore. We don't see the people of this world according to the flesh anymore. We distinguish people as to whether they're in Christ or not in Christ, whether they're old creation or new creation. And the good news for us as weak tent dwellers is that the gospel of Christ, even today, declares to each one of us in Christ, new creation, new creation, new creation. That's who you are. And in the future, the power of God will swallow up in resurrection and victory your weak, and, uh, your weak human tent and give you a permanent home. You are a new creation. This is the results of the ministry. It's for all people. Available to everyone that we might not be an old creation but a new creation again and all of this ministry is from is from God verses 18 to 21. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us a message the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This section's amazing, but verse 21 is a pinnacle verse, isn't it? Jesus did the great trade or exchange with us. He took his life perfect and righteous in every way and traded his life for our life full of sin and rebellion against God and traded the two that we might gain his righteousness and he would take on our sin this is what happens at the cross as we get closer to Easter this is what we remember on Good Friday the great exchange that takes place the righteousness of Christ for the sin of humanity swapped at the cross so that we can be reconciled to God. We, as the enemies of God, can be reconciled to Jesus, to God, because of what Jesus has done for us. We can be reconciled because that great exchange and that great trade has taken place. And so Paul says, as God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus, he gives to all followers of Christ the ministry of reconciliation. Yes, in our weakness. Yes, in our tent. Yes, in our jar of clay. Yes, in our coffee mug or plastic bag of a life. But he places within us that treasure of the ministry of reconciliation and calls on us to be ambassadors for Christ that God may make his appeal through us. This is the heart of Christian ministry. That God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus and he calls us to be his ambassadors. And so, we are left with this great message of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, you would think that Paul would say at this point, get out into the world and let everybody know about this message and that is absolutely true. But here he speaks to the saints in Corinth and calls on them in verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Come to him. He says this to the saints and to those he speaks the gospel to for the first time. And we say it to one another. And I say it to you this morning. It's a great morning to be reconciled to God. Christ is making his appeal through me. And Christ will make his appeal through you as you urge others to be reconciled to God. If you are not yet reconciled and friends with God, today's the day to do so. And if you are, today's the day to be reminded that you have been reconciled to God through Christ and he has made you ambassadors. And so if you are, remember this. In your tent, your goal is to please God by persuading others. By speaking those words of the treasure that God has put deep down inside the clay jar we call our lives. But it won't be this way forever. For all of us that know the Lord Jesus, we are waiting for the upgrade. It'll happen. And when it does, it will be glorious. The things that are unseen are eternal. You might like to ask a question or two. And I'm going to take some time to answer those. Let's take about two minutes to reflect, to have a think, to read the passage again perhaps, or to ask a question and then I'll be back to do that in just a minute. Ask a question if you've got one, but uh, for the meantime, oh, there's a couple of uh, couple of questions coming through. First one is from Beck. How, uh, verse ten says, "We may receive what is due." Sounds like we receive punishment in heaven. Does this mean there will be levels of heaven according to what we've done? Uh, 
No, I don't think there, there won't, certainly won't be punishment in, in heaven, that's, that's for sure. Um, there is a judgment for what we've done, though. So it's like saying uh, someone does... Uh, my, my kids, they all do different jobs at home, say, for example. They've been, which doesn't happen, does it, Leighton? No, it does. He does all right. He does all right. Uh, all right. I'll get it later on. Anyway. Uh, so, no, but imagine they did, and uh, then they... They, well, I'm, I'm, they're, imagining, they're imagining three doing it at the same time, okay? All right? It's an analogy. Uh, imagine that they all did it at the same time, but then I gave them different rewards for uh, how much they had done, in other words. And I might give, because um, yeah, I love the Chiquito chocolate bar, I might give uh, one Chiquito to one of my children, two to another one, and three to another one. It's not a punishment to give one of them one. That's still a reward, isn't it? That's still a reward. But three is a greater reward. Um, so I think that's what's going on here in this passage. It's not punishment because you're not going to end up with no salvation, that's for sure. Um, but God is saying, uh, and th- this is an area of theology that's uh, complicated because it's not very clear in the New Testament. But it is clear that there is some sort of, um, there is some sort of uh, reward to the way that we've lived our lives. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. Uh, and does that change the nature of your salvation? Most certainly and most definitely not. We have to say that very, very clearly um, because the guy on the cross who had absolutely zero opportunity to do anything uh, is in heaven perfectly happy uh, next to Jesus. Now, how does that all work? I don't actually know the answer to those questions. Uh, I just know what happens to be here in this passage is that we will, uh, we will be evaluated or judged on what it is that we've done in serving and pleasing God. So um, definitely no punishment. Levels in heaven, don't know. No idea about that. Um, reward, I don't know what the reward looks like either. So it's just also unclear. Um, but that uh, verse 10 is, is quite clear that we will be uh, uh, receiving what is due, a bit like the, um, the Chiquitos in my family. Uh, second one, what is the place of prayer in persuasion? Uh, well, very big, uh, I, I take it. Um, Paul was uh, very keen on, on prayer, um, but uh, prayer is not instead of persuasion. That's an important point to make. Um, it's not uh, as if that we just pray uh, and there's no persuasion because God has given us the ministry uh, of reconciliation. He's the reconciler. He gives us the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors for Christ, and so that's part of who we are. We're, we're the speaking people who have the treasure within us, and that's hard. Uh, that's not always easy, and that's why the church family is so important. A good example of this is the holiday club coming up. Not every one of us is going to be able to speak the words to the kids that come or the parents that come. That's true, but we can all play our part in the speaking task of persuasion as we all contribute in various ways as a church family to make that thing happen. That's, uh, that's where the, the church family comes in uh, and, uh, and really, uh, really, really important. Um, so prayer is incredibly important, but not to be confused um, with the persuasion itself. Uh, putting some things together, how can our weakness be persuasive? Uh, yeah, it can be. The fact that we live in this tent, which is weak. Now, every human being does that, but the Christian person will look at their tent in a different way. Won't they? They'll look at it differently. They'll set up their whole life, not like the people down the street. It's just not what we do. We set up life differently to other people. We have a different set of priorities uh, and we have a different uh, outlook to the way our bodies operate. 
uh, it doesn't mean we, we treat them poorly or anything like that, but our, our weakness in our body uh, is used to long for what is to come, whereas people in the world don't do that. They try to lock up everything in this body, make it last as humanly possible long as they can because there's nothing to come after that. Uh, and so you've got to get every bit of material life and squeeze that sponge as much as you can. Whereas the Christian says, if I don't have uh, all of those material things in my life, uh, and if I don't, you know, use that analogy, give my kids every opportunity type thing, it doesn't matter. Because if I don't give my kids every opportunity, but they go to heaven, they're going to get every opportunity there. That's fine. Uh, it's, a different, it's a different outlook on life. And so our weakness ends up being persuasive because it's just so different, uh, I think. Uh, next one, I feel born again having just survived a bowel cancer surgery. My body feels awake after praying to God in a place of extreme misery and extreme nausea, a new outlook. Um, thank you for that. I, uh, I think that's right. Uh, this is the tent that we, we live in. And uh, as we, as we uh, uh, live in this tent, then we see that this is, this is not all there is. Uh, and, uh, and as we connect with God in those weak places, that's, that's what God wants us to do, isn't it? He wants us to realise this is not what there is. He's got, as it says, an earthly home, uh, a building from God, not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. Uh, that's great news. Thanks for your testimony. Let me pray.